Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of one of our 2020 Elul study classes. I'm going to start with a poem today. Uh, I don't know who wrote it. So if you're familiar with this, let me know. It's called Spiritual Fitness. If you can start the day without caffeine or pep pills, if you can be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you their time, if you can overlook when people take things out on you when, through no fault of yours, something goes wrong, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can face the world without lies and deceit, if you can conquer tension without medical help, if you can relax without liquor, if you can sleep without the aid of drugs, you are probably a dog. (laughs) Surprise ending there. The point is, We're not expected to be perfect. We're expected to struggle to be perfect. (laughs) And that's where humility enters into it. So let's start with a humility exercise uh, in case we have time for questions and comments later. Call me Phil, okay? That's my humility exercise. (laughs) You know, people say cantor or rabbi, as you know, the rabbis who are on today. And it's a sign of respect and an acknowledgement of our commitment to uh, to the community, but it also sets up expectations. So if my Kol Nidre is eh, so-so this year, mm, you'll be disappointed, right? That'd be bad. If you uh, go to a Dodger game on a Saturday and you see me there eating a Dodger dog, you'd be pretty disappointed in me. You know, you could do that, but, you know, I can't do that. (laughs) So we do these things to ourselves all the time. We attribute status to people with titles uh, and material success, people who own stuff. And then we have a shameful case of schadenfreude when they inevitably fall. I do this, too. I've been a cantor. I became a cantor in midlife. I was a songwriter and a singer before that. Uh, So, uh, you know, I'm not 40 or even 50, uh, but I've been a cantor for 18 years. And I'm surrounded by really, really smart, well-educated rabbis and uh, and another cantor who uh, has been a cantor at VBS for uh, 40 years and has been a a cantor full-time for about 50 years. So uh, I don't need a lesson in humility. I just walk into VBS every day. Uh, however, that's not the problem. The problem is, is not enough humility. Everyone wants to bend our ears uh, with their answers, whether uh, it's an answer to the coronavirus or our political future. Uh, thanks to the 24-hour news cycle, we're all experts, all experts on politics. Uh, but even the experts don't agree. So maybe we're looking in the wrong place for uh, for our answers. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I don't want to dwell on politics, but I want to do want to quote from one politician, a guy named Václav Havel. You might remember him. He was president of Czechoslovakia after being a successful poet and playwright for many years. I'll get to that in a second. First, I want to tell you about another problem. It's problem of hubris, 
Okay, hubris is sort of the opposite of humility. Hubris says that I I know everything and I can know everything. So some years ago, um, I was hired to save the world. This is a true story, honestly. About 30 years ago, I was working for a man uh, doing a, some creative projects, writing, writing songs, doing voices and things like that. And uh, he was very successful, became you know, after many years, he became an overnight success and he made millions and he decided now's my chance to save the world. I want, really want to do something. And remember 30 years ago, there was uh, a big movement of, um, you know, we are the world and uh, uh, farm aid and live aid. And there were all these celebrities doing big, big things. So he called me into his office one day and he said, Phil, I want to, I want to save the world. And, I'm going to, you are on salary. I'm going to pay you to figure out how to save the world. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to have the Beatles on TV on every net, every network is going to agree. And the Beatles are going to go on TV and we're going to deliver our message. And I said, well, you know, one of them is no longer with us. Uh, it's kind of a problem. He said, all right, the other three, we're going to get the Beatles on TV and every network's going to sign on to this. We're going to do this really huge thing. And now I want you to go off and tell me what the message is. <laughs> no pressure at all. Okay. So I went off and I started reading. And I read uh, scholarly material, Jewish stuff. I read Christian material. I read Bertrand Russell. Uh, I, I looked at all the Hindu sages I read and listen to lectures and talk to people. And after six months, I walked back into his office and I said, well, I've, uh, I've got good news and bad news. The good news is I figured it out. I figured out how to get peace on earth. He said, fantastic. That's great. Uh, and he said, what's the bad news? And I said, the bad news is each of us has to change. Each of us has to raise our consciousness to a certain point so that we can do this. I'm telling the story because hubris says that I can do everything. I can change the world. And so what I learned from that is that when young people come to me and say, I want to change the world, I say, well, have you cleaned your room? <laughs> have you helped your parents with the dishes? Have you done all these small things? Because that's what's required of us to do those small things, to fix ourselves as much as we can, knowing, by the way, that we're not expected to be perfect. I'll repeat this, but we're expected to struggle to be perfect, and maybe then we can do something. So now, now the quote from Václav Havel. I'm reading this because he agrees with me. He came to the United States shortly after the, uh, the revolution there in Czechoslovakia and after the fall of the Soviet Union, and he said, we have something to offer you now, our experience and the knowledge that has come from it. The specific experience I'm talking about has given me one certainty. Consciousness precedes being and not the other way around, as the Marxists claim. For this reason, the salvation of this human world lies nowhere else than in the human heart. In the human power to reflect in human meekness, or humility, I would say, and in human responsibility. Without a global revolution in the sphere of human consciousness, nothing will change for the better. 
and the catastrophe toward which this world is heading, be it ecological, social, demographic, or a general breakdown of civilization, will be unavoidable. So, so grateful to him for agreeing with me. Uh, so, um, not Jewish enough for you? Okay, uh, here's Heschel. Heschel on the same subject. <clears throat> this is from uh, the book, A Passion for Truth, about the Kutzker Rebbe. The Kutzker, the, to, to the Kutzker, the central problem was not the world, it was the self. Defiance or depreciation of the world was possible only through defiance or depreciation of the self. Unable to find consummation in mere outwardness, the Kutzker Rebbe demanded inwardness, purity of heart. His reevaluation or discovery of Judaism is a service of inwardness. It led him to disparage repetitiveness, routine, or religious habits. Okay, we all complain about uh, the kind of a superficiality sometimes uh, with our prayer, with our practice. He refused to accept the human condition with its quotidian quality, meaning kind of an everydayness to it. And he demanded continuous transformation and transcendence to the interior life. In the absence of truth, there were only imitation and pretense which inevitably led to corruption. Such radicalism was far removed from quietism or pietistic spirituality. Uh, okay, so, so maybe we can't know everything or see everything. How about the Baal Shem Tov? Baal Shem Tov says, think of yourself as nothing and totally forget yourself when you pray. Then, and only then, you can enter the world of thought, a state that is beyond time. In the world of thought, all is equal, life and death and land and sea. The message at the sea was that they were to relinquish their ego and forget about their troubles, to enter the world of thought. There all is equal, and it is not possible to reach this level when you are attached to the physical worldly things, attached to the division between good and evil. So do we have the courage and the wisdom and the humility to admit that we don't know everything? Uh, so here's, I talked about uh, dogs before. <clears throat> so here's a question about dogs. Do any of you have a really smart dog? If you do, you could unmute and, and say something if you like. Nobody has a smart dog? I have a smart dog. I have a smart dog. Okay, great. So uh, those are, I, I'm not seeing everybody on my screen, but if you have a smart dog, tell me. Actually, I'm going to put this on a gallery view. There we go. All right. Who has a smart dog? Could you just raise your hand? Great. Okay. Uh, Barbara, tell yes. me about what, what makes your dog smart? Um, what makes my dog, she, she does most things that I want, but when she has an idea in her head and she doesn't want to listen to me, she, her idea wins out. And that's, and that's, that's obstinacy that is, she knows she's doing it. 
And she knows she's going to get yelled at for it, such as she loves to eat my mail. <laughs> wow, really? Wow. Yeah. Only the checks, right? <laughs> yeah, but I don't know. She, If I tell her to do something, she knows what I want her to do. If I tell her to sit, she mm. knows what I want. And, and it was easy to teach her that stuff. And she's tenacious, right? We would say stubborn, but tenacious, right? Yes, very definitely. And she's nice on top of that. Great, great. Who else had their hand up? Okay, great. Rabbi, Rabbi Schatz. Oh, no, I don't, I, I was rubbing my eye, but I believe Azita, you called her Ozzy before, she has her hand up. Great. Yes, I do. So uh, what happened, there is this path that we walk together, and um, where there are stairs, every single time my knee has aches and pains, so the first time I went with the dog, obviously, after the stairs, I was looking, and I didn't notice, as if he had the intuition to completely slow down with the stairs, and I noticed, wow, I've been doing this hike by myself, and every time I ended up with knee pain after this stairs, and he's a smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the, the, the physical world, the dogs really understand very well. No, no doubt about it. Anyone else? Yes, Renee. I think my dog is intelligent because he has compassion empathy, and he follows directions most of the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so dogs have an emotional uh, capacity as well, don't they? Yes. Yeah. So most of the time, yeah, he has his own, his own will. Yes, Rabbi. I don't, I don't have a dog, but I, I'm reminded of the uh, saying that somebody told me that um, cats are like teenagers and dogs are like toddlers. <laughs> I like that a lot. So uh, just to sum up a little bit, dogs, you know, are, can be very smart. They, they, they can be taught to sit, to fetch, to perhaps not eat the mail. <laughs> I have a dog that eats napkins uh, and hard to stop that habit. We don't, we, we don't put them on our laps anymore. You know, we put them on the table. Uh, and uh, dogs have certain emotional qualities. Certainly my, uh, my dog is very emotional. Um, can a dog do math? Anybody know a dog that does math? No. You know, you see sometimes a horse on TV, you know, once for yes, twice for no, right? Uh, so, no, dogs can't do math. They Can they uh, appreciate Mozart? Probably not. Do they look forward to meeting their grandchildren? <laughs> no, probably not. Uh, yeah, can they read? No, they can't read. Can they make dinner for you? No, there are a lot of things they can't do. But the dog knows what the dog needs to do. Like Ozzy was saying, the dog knows how to get down the stairs without hurting the dog's self. Uh, the dog knows how to get you to feed it, how to let it out, hopefully, when it needs to go outside, how to get you to maybe take it for a walk. But the, the dog only knows what it needs to know. So here's where human humility comes in handy. We all think that we can know everything. We think we see 
touch, taste, feel, hear, everything that there is to be heard or seen or touched or tastes or felt. But can we? I don't know. The, the dog has no idea. If you, you know, if you say Mozart or Beethoven, the dog would have zero uh, ability to distinguish that. So therefore, might there be things that we can't see? Might we have the humility to admit as human beings that we can't see, hear, feel, touch, taste, everything that there is to be experienced? And that maybe someone like Moses or the Baal Shem Tov or, uh, or your rabbi uh, can perceive something that you don't. It's possible. Okay. Um, we have started a spiritual center at Valley Beth Shalom, and we're calling it Efshar, which means it's possible. It's possible, maybe it's possible that there are things that we don't perceive every single day. So, uh, along those lines, I'm going to ask you to do something really, really, really radical for Jewish people. And uh, that is, I'm going to ask you to be silent for a little while. There are, uh, according to my calculations, 960 waking minutes in this day, August 19th, 2020. 960 minutes. I'm going to ask you to give me two, just two minutes of complete silence. So put yourself in a comfortable position, only two minutes, honestly. And what I want you to do is just be, just be during those two minutes and observe just what's present. Ask yourself that question. In fact, what's present for me right now? Other thoughts may creep in. We'll talk about that in two minutes, okay? So I just want you to give me two minutes of silence, all right? You can close your eyes if you like. I prefer doing that. But I will keep an eye on the watch, and I promise it won't be longer than two minutes. It'll probably seem like an eternity, okay? Are we ready? And go. So what what did you notice? Ask yourself this. What did you notice was your mind active probably was was it judging you know i like this i don't like this was it planning you know, i've got to get to the store i got to make dinner i've got to call so and so was it remembering something were there regrets were you remembering what you saw on tv last night Okay, I lied. I need one more minute, <laughs> just one minute. I promise it's the last one. And this time, instead of just sitting, I want you to focus on your breath and see what thoughts arise. And when thoughts arise, just say, hello, thought, and let it go. Hello, thought, let it go, and come back to your breath. Your breath is going to be um, the center of your kavana. Kavana means directing, direct your heart toward just your breath, okay, for one minute, and go. You know, it says in our tradition, um, we say this prayer on, Shabb on Shabbat, Vishamru, right? On the seventh day, God, Shavat Vayinafash, that God ceased, Shavat and Shabbat, right? Same root, same word. 
Shabbat means to cease. Maybe if we just ceased from our constant feeling that we need to move forward all the time, maybe if we were just to stop occasionally, maybe once or twice a day, just stop and observe what's going on with us instead of constantly being out in the world and moving and trying to accomplish, maybe that would be a good idea. If you want to experience anything fully, it will happen when you are able to focus on that one thing you're doing. When your mind is active and creating fantasies, you can't do anything really fully well. It's like if you drop a stone into a pond that's completely still, you see that the vibrations come out perfectly. But if the water's like this, like your mind often is, when you throw that stone in, it will simply disappear. So I think, uh, what, does, what does this have to do with humility? I think we have to have the humility to say that um, that we're not completely in charge of everything. I keep returning to that theme. Okay. So uh, now I'm going to come to um, the first thing I thought of when uh, I was asked to teach about humility was uh, some teaching from a guy named Parker Palmer, not Jewish. He's an American educator. Uh, he's the founder and senior partner emeritus of the Center for Courage and Renewal. And he wrote a beautiful essay called Leading from Within. And in it, he talks about shadows. Sometimes in meditation, we start to notice these negative shadows that come in. So I, I want to talk about this for a moment. And here's a quote from Parker Palmer. He says, the first thing to notice a shadow of is insecurity. It's insecurity about our identity and self-worth. With some of us, our identity becomes so dependent on our public role that we become depressed and even die when that role is taken away. So right now, out in the world, if I were an actor, like my daughter and son-in-law are, and out of work, uh, if I were a restaurateur, or an athlete, or so many other professions that one might totally identify with and yet have that profession, that title stripped away from them. Oh, there's your dog. That's wonderful. <laughs> Annie's got her dog. We'll talk about how smart your dog is. Uh, if that role is stripped away from you, that, that's a terrible thing. So how should we identify ourselves, and what might we identify with that might be more eternal? Hmm. So Parker Palmer's second shadow is the belief that the universe is a battleground. If we fail to be fiercely competitive, he says, we will surely lose because the world we live in is essentially a vast combat zone. There's really no room for humility uh, in the business world, for instance, in the synagogue world even. It's highly competitive. And if I'm just humble all the time, um, what might become of me? So it's a zero-sum game that you could lose, in other words. But remember what Havel said, consciousness comes before being, okay? Now, the third shadow is the one I wanted to talk about today. It's something that he calls functional atheism. It's the belief that ultimate responsibility for everything rests with us. This is, these are his words. This is the unconscious, unexamined conviction that if anything decent is going to happen, it's going to be up to me. So uh, some of you who have children, you might know that you have this great uh, impulse 
to try to control everything that your children do. Hmm? Uh, and if you have parents, uh, you know that uh, that uh, condition comes from them. And as our parents age, maybe we want to control everything that our parents do. And now extrapolate that out into the world. So in Judaism, we have this wonderful idea called tikkun olam. And uh, it's really caught on as a phrase in, in, in Jewish life. And it means fixing the world, right? Well, the phrase is actually litakein olam bimalchut shaddai. We're supposed to fix the world, but for the kingdom of heaven. There's a reason for it. It's not just for our own self-interest. It's for the kingdom of heaven. So another example of where a little humility um, might be a good idea. So I said I was going to quote, I think I said anyway, two politicians. One was Václav Havel. The second one is A.J. Heschel, who said, prayer is our humble answer to the inconceivable surprise of living. I think that's a beautiful uh, thing. But now here's the politician, Abraham Lincoln. I have been driven many times upon my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My wife has that hanging in her office. I've been driven many times upon my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. So before we reach that point, I suggest in all humility that we consider opening our hearts and being present to the divine presence. And maybe we can save our world. So uh, just a couple of things now, because I think we're going to end with prayer. And three thoughts that occurred to me from uh, prayer, two of them from our daily prayers. Um, in the Birchot HaShachar, we say, Baruch Ata Aronai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam HaMechin Mitzadegaver. We're thanking God for preparing our steps. Hmm, maybe we're not in charge of everything. And Baruch Ata'aronai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asali Kol Tzorki, that God uh, uh, provides for all of our needs. Some years ago, and I'll end with this, some years ago uh, I participated in a retreat, and I was sitting around the table with a bunch of cantors and rabbis, and one of the rabbis said, you know, I found out recently that I have diabetes and I have to do injections a couple times a day and I'm really upset about it and I don't know how to uh, bless that moment. How would I bless that moment when I have to, you know, um, uh, take care of myself in that way? And I said, what about this prayer, Baruch Sorki, that God provides for all of our needs. If you didn't have insulin, you you couldn't live. And she said, that's such a great idea. And so we got up and we were talking about it. And as we walked away from the table, one of the workers from the kitchen came out. It was a kosher kitchen and uh, an Orthodox woman. And uh, and she said, oh, just a second. I have, I have to say something to this person. She said, I just want to thank you for all the wonderful meals um, that you've been cooking for us. And she said, I'm happy to provide for all your needs. She had no idea what we had been talking about. And we both said, ah, it's one of those moments. <laughs> so uh, thank you all. I was going to sing a little bit more with my guitar, but the guitar seemed to cause the microphone to go. 
So I'm not going to do that. Um, but if you'd like, come to our services at Valley Beth Shalom on Friday nights. Or uh, you can go to Beth Am and hear Cantor Chorney. Uh, she's a wonderful musician and singer. She's over there somewhere. And uh, uh, very nice to be with you all today. Any questions or comments? While you're thinking, let me mention that we do have the spiritual center. And uh, on Tuesday mornings at 1030, we are having a meditation for 45 minutes. And it's, you know, it's a little teaching and some silence. Uh, I know Parker Palmer in one of his writings said, you know, people can't stand more than 15 seconds of silence. <laughs> if something is dying <laughs> beyond 15 seconds. But uh, I assure you, it'll be a great experience. So please join us for some meditation Tuesday mornings. We actually call it Shabbat. Remember, it means cease. Shabbat on Tuesdays, 1030. Mm. Everyone's mm. meditating. That's really nice. Yeah. Any questions? Everyone's staying quiet. <laughs> yeah, Renee. I just was curious as to you said you started out as a actor. I mean, as a song thing, and then you went into Chazanut later in life. What caused? Yeah. What brought you to do that? Uh, it, you know, it, it was on my to do list uh, since I was a kid. Um, basically, I, I have a number of rabbis and even one cantor in my family. And uh, when I was a kid, they all said, oh, he's going to be a chazan. And they would put me up on the table and have me sing. Um, but, you know, I wanted to play guitar and uh, play rock and roll. And I, I, I got uh, uh, <laughs> distracted along the way. And uh, But it was always in the back of my mind that one day I might do that. I, I, I went to shul. I in, enjoyed Judaism very much. Um, but uh, somewhere along the way, I was asked to start leading some services and uh, – then uh, Rabbi Feinstein and our music director at that time came. No, you should do this. <laughs> and I said, okay, maybe it's time. So uh, I, yeah, I was uh, 50 when I became a cantor. Nice. Yeah. Did you get a, I, I told you so? <laughs> yeah, from my uh, aunts and uncles. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the ones who were still living. <laughs> and my mom. It made my mom really happy. That's really the reason I did it. <laughs> I'll, I'll ask a question. Um, for for clergy specifically, humility is a really interesting topic. Um, and I think that maybe even more so for cantors than for rabbis at times, because you're literally showing off a skill that you have in a really beautiful way, and that's how you are adding to the community. Um, and, and I would just love to hear you as a cantor speak about what, how do you find yourself um, acknowledging or battling or challenging the idea of humility um, in the work that you do and in the way that you lead a community? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, two things. First of all, becoming clergy late in life, uh, no offense to my younger colleagues, uh, brought with it a lot of humility because um, – you know, life is full of disappointments, no doubt about it. And so as you age, um, a humility comes with territory. I think that those of you who are uh, in my age group would be able to relate to that. The other part of it, though, is that switching from performing as a young man to uh, leading services is a very different thing. And at some point, I, it, that clicked in with me that, 
The important thing is not how do I look, not how do I sound, not oh that uh, uh, that f I just sang wasn't so good, you know. It's not that. It's the text. So and so if I find myself being self-conscious that way about what I'm doing, of course you have to have some consciousness about it. But if that's the overriding thing that you're feeling when you're standing on the bima, you then you have to remind yourself back to the book. Back to the text. Keep your finger on the words. What am I saying? And what responsibility do I have in leading the congregation in carrying these prayers to God? If you take it seriously, uh, then the other stuff goes away. <laughs> but it, it is it's, it is a battle. Yeah, no question. Rabbi David Lieber um, of Blessed Memory yes. used to say, um, and for those of you who do not know who David Lieber is, he was really one of the master rabbis of our time. Um, you'll see his name all over the Eitz Chaim Chumash, if that's something that you have. He worked on the commentaries and the compilation of that Chumash. Um, I was lucky enough to have him as a very close family friend. And one of the things that he would often say to us as kids when we wouldn't want to hold a sidur or we wouldn't want to keep our finger on a page, he would say... I still do that every single time that I daven because I might find something new in the words that I'm saying, or even with the Shema, I might think that I know them, but I might become distracted. And I think that so much of, of what you're saying is, is heard in that statement that there is, there needs to still be this sense of humility that, yeah, I went, I went to school for this, or I can do this well, or I know what page we're supposed to be on. But at the end of the day, we're all still learning and we're all still trying to figure out how the words and the tradition permeates us just as much as any Jew in the pew. Um, and so I keep that with me often in terms of when humility is something that is that is tough for me to battle. That's beautiful. Yeah. How much more so when you have great familiarity with something. Exactly. That it can become uh, uh, automatic. Yeah. And and, and lose its meaning. And when yeah. prayer loses its meaning, that's that's a serious problem for us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, Joy just asked me, wasn't he president at the UJ? Yes, indeed he was, yes. Yeah, wonderful man. Yeah. yeah. Maybe Cantor Baron, it's worth, even if you have to do it acoustically, maybe it's worth singing something um, or acapella, whatever you think will be best, and we can sing us out. Sure. Um, I'll, I'll hold the guitar up to the microphone. Great, great. I think you may know this song, so if you do, please sing along. And you must 
Listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am, Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.